Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from clinical development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. We're so excited to welcome Dr. Sharif Terraman today. He's the CEO of Cognoa. He's a pediatric neurologist by training, the former division chief of the Children's Hospital of Orange County, um, board certified in clinical informatics, and has had some amazing experiences truly as a a serial entrepreneur um, in a lot of different ways. Today, we're going to be speaking about the role of AI in medicine more broadly, about the digital medicine space, digital therapeutics, digital diagnostics, and everything in between, as well as a vision in the future for the industry. So welcome to the show, Sharif. Really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. To start us out, uh, would you mind maybe giving us a little bit more of an overview of Cognoa? What is the organization? What are you building? And what is the vision for what the organization can be? Yeah, so Cognos is this really interesting organization that I became aware of about six or seven years ago. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking on a artificial intelligence in medicine, specifically around neurosciences and pediatric neurodevelopment. Uh, and I met their founder, which is Dr. Dennis Wall, um, who had originally done his um, initial work that founded the company out of Harvard uh, and then moved over to Stanford now and is a professor over at Stanford University. And it was just really remarkable um, to see you know, this company, which was working on how do we really improve uh, the evaluation of children with neurodevelopmental uh, disorders or delays, identify them and, um, you know, really help them. Uh, and so we've been uh, building a software as a medical device. Uh, that's the category within the Food and Drug Administration uh, that we fall under. Uh, and we have uh, market authorization on a diagnostic, the first of its kind. Um, to aid in the diagnosis of autism, but also breakthrough designation on a therapeutic also to treat the uh, treat autism spectrum disorder. So um, a really cool pediatric neurodevelopmental behavioral health company, um, but also with this really kind of cool AI background um, that they're applying artificial intelligence uh, to improve healthcare outcomes and, and recognition of neurodevelopmental disorders. One of the things that I've found so interesting, Sharif, and in our opportunities to collaborate and how you've talked about the organization is not just the the limited focus on autism and the potential to diagnose these children early, but really the the broad potential to diagnose autism as a precursor for other diseases, as well as the comorbid conditions that are often associated with autism. Can you speak a little bit more about um, kind of that future potentiality, as well as some of the conflated diseases that you're thinking about and, and really working on? Yeah, so the interesting thing and the reason that AI is so important in this space is because there's a lot of heter- heterogeneity um, within autism spectrum disorders and related conditions are often common. So we see a lot of what we call comorbidities with autism. So things like ADHD, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, the, the gamut is, is pretty wide. And so uh, one of the, the benefits of actually applying AI and looking at children in this very high dimensional whole child models, which is what we call it, looking at all the different areas in which uh, kids socialize, which kids, you know, interact with each other with uh, having movements, uh, et cetera. So looking at the whole child, it really helps us characterize uh, not only autism, but really start building the pipeline uh, to recognize other related conditions like ADHD, as I mentioned, or anxiety. 
The other thing that's really interesting in this space is, as I mentioned, we have breakthrough designation on a therapeutic for the autism. When you really understand a condition in high dimensional space and understand what are the drivers by which there are areas of challenge or areas that you want to improve on, when you start really understanding each of these individual patients, we actually start moving from, you know, talking about personalized medicine, which has been something that, you know, people talk about all the time to actually doing it um, and really creating, you know, individualized treatment plans. So I think there's a lot of kind of things that are on the cusp in healthcare uh, that we're, you know, again, we've been talking about them for a long time, but we're actually ready to start doing them. And I think personalization of medicine is one of them. Uh, and then the other one is, you know, we've talked about equity and we'll, we can probably get into that a little bit later, um, but really having equity in our care uh, is, a, is a challenge. And so how do you bring justice and democratization of medicine around neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, I think is another, you know, really important topic that we've been talking about for a really long time, but finally have an opportunity to actually do something about. And how does that relate to what you you've personally seen in clinical practice. I think that democratization of medicine is absolutely critical. And I know that's been a personal mission for you in particular, as you've been building out the platform at Cognoa. Can you speak to exactly what Cognoa is doing and, and what Canvas and your platform has been able to do uh, to improve access, but really kind of your vision for what it could be? I think, as you mentioned, I did my residency training in neurology, but actually the course of which you do this is you do two years of pediatrics after medical school, you do one year of adult neurology, and then I did two years of pediatric neurology specific training. So in my five years of residency, um, working in the Detroit metropolitan area, I trained at Children's Hospital in Michigan. One of the things that you can see is, is that, you know, children, especially in this demographic um, around neurodevelopmental disorder, children who were non-affluent, not white males were getting missed. And the interesting thing is, is that then when I moved my practice and I started as an attending uh, at Children's Health of Orange County and the University of California, Irvine, it was no better in Southern California. And the reality is, it doesn't matter where you go in our country or where you go in the world, the roots of how we characterize neurodevelopmental disorders, specifically autism, we actually excluded females in the original descriptions. And so if you're a biologic female, you can understand how long-seated, long-rooted, biases permeate and, and exist today. And so, you know, when we think about what we're trying to do as a nation, so as a, actually a chapter president for the American Academy of Pediatrics is another hat that I wear. One of the things that we look at is how do we encourage the healthy people goals? So as a nation, we have goals around how do we have a healthy nation and our healthy people 2020 goals were improve the average age of diagnosis of autism and get kids into early intervention because we know that that makes a huge difference. And we have this really finite window of opportunity to maximize the improvement of any neurodevelopmental condition. So if you miss it, you, you, these kids don't do as well. Uh, and so guess what? We have the same goals for 2030 because we didn't meet our 2020 goals. And oh, by the way, when we looked at our baseline, we're actually doing worse as a country than we did in the years prior. So it's actually the problem is getting worse. And so all of this is to say, you know, as a company, we have this as a priority and as a mission to really try and start addressing these things and address these disparities, which, again, exist everywhere you go. And Sharif, why is that early diagnosis so critical during that window of um, behavioral health conditions? It holds true 
particularly for behavioral health conditions or any neurologic disorder. So one of the mantras that you learn, you know, when you're a neurologist is time is brain. So if you have a stroke, we know that every second you're losing neurons, your, your, your brain, you know, is, is being injured. And so time is of the essence. The other thing though, is if you flip that in the pediatric neurodevelopment, the way that the brain develops is you're creating all of these connections in your brain. And then you hit a point somewhere around like 18 months, 24 months, you get to like a peak and then your brain actually starts pruning back neurons and creating dominant pathways in the brain. And so if you can imagine a child who gets identified at four and a half, which is, or about four and a half, which is around the average age of diagnosis in the United States, you've missed this opportunity to influence all of that neurodevelopment. And so in clinical practice and all the evidence suggests if I can identify those kids early, early on, one of the things that's really interesting is it's, it's actually not how much treatment you give, it's how early you give it. And there was a recent paper that just came out by, um, uh, actually from one of our colleagues at Children's National uh, uh, Hospital that looked at the time to treatment and it was the time that mattered. And so one of the things that, you know, again, when we're talking about value proposition is if you don't identify these kids early, there's a couple things that happen. So one is you miss that early intervention window. So now the, the challenging parts of autism, and again, autism has lots of beautiful things about it. And some of these neurodevelopmental conditions, they're actually kind of really interesting and, and they're beautiful. But on the flip side of that, we know that if you don't recognize it and you have a tendency, let's say towards anxiety, which is what a related condition, the more you allow the brain to practice being anxious, the stronger and more hardwired it becomes. And now if you wanna intervene, you've gotta do longer, stronger, more intensive therapy, which guess what? Costs way more money. And then you're, you don't have as good outcomes and it's much more frustrating to the families and more frustrating to the physicians. So it's a win-win for everybody, the payer, the patient and the clinician, if we can identify these children early, intervene and guess what? a great majority of these kids actually will grow up and not have the neurodevelopmental or neurobehavioral condition that we were worried about or diagnosed originally. There's actually a huge number of those kids that will actually lose the diagnosis because they no longer meet criteria because your interventions were so important. The flip side of that too is in, on the payer side. So you can say, okay, fine, you know, it may be a cost more to diagnose if you do it later um, or you know, you have some healthcare costs that are that are increased, um, you know, in terms of treatment. But the reality is, is if you take autism, for example, um, I can tell you that there are children who are not recognized as having autism, have very restrictive eating patterns, and those restrictive eating patterns are so severe and not being addressed that it actually leads to nutritional deficiencies. And you can imagine, you know, in the 21st century, nobody should be having scurvy, but you know, vitamin C deficiency, scurvy hospitalization is a huge cost to the system. And that's actually what we saw and presented at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Convention this past year is cost data that shows the longer you're waiting to diagnose these children, the more they cost the system. But all, the all health, all cause healthcare utilization is things like increased hospitalizations for just what I talked about. And that's actually a personal story that I, I saw in the clinical practice. So this is where having this early diagnosis and having a tool that you can actually apply in the real world and that works within a healthcare practice can make this huge difference. So Sharif, like a tool like um, Canvas DX, you look at the signs, symptoms, and behavior of the, of the child, right? 
and then you integrate that with the AI. And as a result, you are able to unlock a, a whole set of data that did not exist before that you would not be able to look at and look for patterns of recognition. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, perfect, Romina. So this is this is the beauty of sort of this digital paradigm that we're getting into. So, you know, the, the digital space, I mean, there's lots of things that are digital, actually, like, you know, my MRIs are technically digital, my EEGs are technically digital. So digital shouldn't scare people, right? Because that's actually pretty ubiquitous in healthcare. What's interesting, though, is the, the, the digital moving it into home settings and moving it into areas that we didn't really practice healthcare in is, I think, what we're seeing in the digital medicine space. And so what it's doing is it's unlocking data that we didn't have before. So normally, if you wanted to get your child evaluated for a neurodevelopmental condition, you get a referral from your primary care physician. You have to go find a specialist. Oh, by the way, I'm one of maybe 1,500 pediatric neurologists in the whole country. So you can imagine what those shortages look like. And they're not getting better. They're getting worse. And so you have to wait. Everywhere has got a wait list. And those waits can be months and even years. And then finally, you get this evaluation. But the evaluation is pretty time intensive and labor intensive. And guess what? The things that you were seeing at home, your child may not do in the clinic or because it's a clinical setting, your child may be like, well, what is this? This is a new space and act very different. And I get this sort of misperception of what reality is for your child. And so using the digital tools, we can collect information at home in the child's natural setting, observe the child naturally. And then to the point about AI, what you're doing with AI is you're looking at maximally predictive features. So one of the challenges that happens in these spaces is, you know, as a human, we think very linearly in many ways. So we go down and we say, okay, does the child have X, Y, Z features? And you sort of can rank them and then you can add them up. But the reality is when you do that adding, you're not looking at how one feature is related to another feature. And the beauty of artificial intelligence and machine learning models is you can look at how every feature is related to every feature and if you're intentional about making sure that your data sets are diverse and have, you know, people of persons of color and socioeconomic status and geogra geographic diversity, you can start overcoming some of these biases and then you can feel comfortable within a heterogeneous population that you get the right answer. One of the things that I found really interesting, just kind of building on what you just said is when we think about the phenotype of some of these diseases, there's the, the phenotype of patients that you're looking at specifically for autism but also autism as a precursor diagnosis for other diseases that might be genetically um, meditated and we might need something much stronger than a digital therapy to intervene and early intervention, whether it's through traditional mechanisms or otherwise, wouldn't be enough kind of given everything else that this child is, is managing or dealing with. Can you help us understand how you're thinking about AI as a mechanism to actually diagnose some of those patients or the, the possibility of that? Yeah, so this is so the original work that Dr. Walt was actually doing, he's a biostatistician, you know, and he was trying to figure out the genomics problem. And he was trying to understand, can I identify the genes that res result in autism? Because we know that there's a genetic component to it. The challenge now is, guess what? You have a many genes to many different types of autism, right? And so it's autism is not one thing, right? It's a hodgepodge of stuff that we call autism, right? And it's a presentation. Um, and, you know, again, when it causes impairment, we call it a disorder because it's makes your life challenging. So 
you know, you can have autistic features, but that doesn't make you have autism unless the autism is actually causing impairment. Or I like to say, you know, I have some obsessive compulsive tendencies, but I don't actually have OCD because those obsessive compulsive tendencies don't result in a disorder or a challenge, right? Um, the only actually, by the way, psychiatric condition or DSM-5 condition um, that doesn't have to cause impairment would be tics, which are like movement, a movement disorder. So you can have tics and even if it doesn't cause impairment, you still have tics. Everything else, right? So you can't be a little bit ADHD and you can't be a little bit autistic disorder, right? The disorder part has to be that it causes challenges in your life. Um, anyways, so a little bit of a side tangent, I will answer your question, which is, how are we thinking about phenotype genotype? So this is really interesting. So as we map these kids out in high dimensional space and we start marrying these phenotypes to genotypes, you can start seeing patterns that exist. And again, one of the reasons that I think we've quote unquote, we as a society or as a healthcare or as researchers have failed to identify the genetic disorders that are related to autism, except in some instances, is that we don't have good phenotyping of these kids. We have, you know, quote, 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 unquote, right, autism spectrum disorder, which is a lot of different things. And so as we map them out in high dimensional space and we collect digital biomarkers, now we can start saying, okay, how do these relate to the genotype? Um, the other interesting thing around genotype phenotype mapping is that just because I have a genetic condition, it will take, let's say, tuberous sclerosis, for example, that doesn't mean I have autism. It just means I have a higher chance of having autism. So again, you still need, and this is why if you look at like the, the biomarker space, I mean, you can have biomarkers, but that doesn't mean you have autism. Autism is still clinical diagnosis, which is why what we're doing is so, so important. Uh, and again, I think it drives everything upstream. So we're, we're this downstream digital medicine diagnostic front, which if you do the diagnosis properly, then you can actually drive the genotype mapping and you can start driving that therapeutic paradigm, what actually works best for this patient and do it in a personalized approach. Is that why the digital medicine has the potential to transform the way the care is being delivered and to ultimately provide that integrated precision healthcare or um, a personalized medicine to the to the patient for all the reasons you just mentioned. Ultimately, that's that's where we end up. Is that is that the right way of thinking about it? Absolutely. I mean, look, healthcare in the United States is is really expensive. I mean, we we've not done a great job with that. And one of the reasons is that we have some maligned incentives, but really it's because we're doing all this care in high cost settings like the hospital and tertiary care centers and specialty care centers. When in reality we could do a much better job of empowering our primary care physicians and you know this sort of lower cost healthcare system and then also empowering patients is is really important i mean you know not to endorse any specific product but i have an apple uh a ios iphone i have the health kit and i have an i watch and it monitors my heart rate and i can see trends that i didn't know existed and I can tell you when, when I really start looking and I'm empowered to look at my heart rate trends and my exercise trends, guess what? I'm healthier for it as an individual. And I think that knowledge and information is power. And part of that is giving it back to the patients. Um, you know, Dr. Eric Topol, who's a, a pretty well-known author and cardiologist down at Scripps, 
And he wrote a great book. If, if you haven't read it, I would really encourage you to read it. It's called The Patient Will See You Now. And it really talks about the democratization of medicine and how digital and digital medicine really can come to fruition to help solve a lot of our healthcare issues that we're having um, and, and give that power back to the patients. And, and being patient-centric and human-centered design, I mean, these are things that in healthcare, I feel like we've failed a lot at in the past. Um, and again, there's a huge opportunity for us to really get back to how do we empower patients? How do we design around patients? How do we bring patients to the table when we're thinking about how do we diagnose, how do we treat, and how do we care for them? They have to have a voice. We're finally at this point and COVID has fortunately or unfortunately accelerated a lot of um, innovation in this space and a lot of interest and investment in the digital health space and bringing people care at home. Um, one of the things that we're often finding, and, and Sharif would love your opinions on this broadly, is that this digital medicine arena is just poorly understood. There's this kind of digital health bucket that's kind of a little bit of everything. And then there's digital medicine where we're really thinking about digital therapeutics, digital diagnostics, and really clinically validated regulated products that really are intended to help diagnose and treat patients at a level of rigor that we would traditional medicines. So can you help break down that space a little bit as even just as a starting point for understanding so that we're all speaking the same language? No, I, I agree with you. I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is, is that I think it, 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 it changed the way that we think about healthcare. For those of us that were practicing healthcare, I think we realized that we have to do something different. Um, you know, we had patients reach out to us and say, you know, I'm, I was on a wait list for an autism evaluation or a neurodevelopmental evaluation, and we got canceled because the clinic didn't know how to evaluate a child remotely, right? And obviously Canvas DX is a digital tool. You can apply it anywhere in the state, you know? Um, and so they, they were, they were told like, we don't know when we'll see you. We'll see you when the pandemic's over. And we all know that took forever, right? I don't even know if it's technically over yet, but, but you know, so you can't do that to people. Um, and again, you know, to the point earlier that we were talking about that you miss this neurodevelopmental window. So, so I think sometimes tragedy or, you know, a, a crisis brings and breeds out innovation in the same way that I think, you know, we, we can all have like frustration and anger. Uh, and it's not something that you're trying to like get rid of. What you're trying to do is take it and say, okay, how do I make this something beautiful? Right. So like I, there's this great story that this girl was asking, I think it was a Tibetan monk, you know, I have anger. How do I let it out? And the monk's like, no, don't let your anger out. The anger doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. And anger is like mud. You have to learn how to man manipulate or use it so that you can grow a flower, right? So it's, it's about transforming, right? So for me, my frustration of seeing kids in my clinic who had been waiting for a diagnosis, pulling up their chart and going, this child could have been recognized five years ago or eight years ago, or even 18 years ago, because I see some teenagers, was enough frustration for me to go, we have to do something systematically to fix the problem, because this is a problem that shouldn't exist. And when you see it with specifically socioeconomic or you know ethnic or racial disparities, like that is a huge frustration point. And I think it should motivate everybody to do, do the things that we're trying to do and try and fix things on a system level. Now, I forgot your original question because I got sidetracked with philosophical talk about mud and anger, but... The, the core question was, what is a digital therapeutic? What is a digital diagnostic? And how should we think about the definitions of this digital medicine space more broadly? 
Beautiful. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, this is really interesting. So there's a lot of tools that started populating, right? Again, this ubiquitous of having a start smartphone in your home or connected devices. I think there's a lot of utility around getting the information. But really, if you're going to make the claim that this thing either recognizes or diagnoses a condition or a disorder or a disease, or whatever you want to call it, or this thing that we've created, which is you know software digitally enabled, treats a condition or a disorder, there is a regulated path now that exists. And so the Food and Drug Administration, specifically the Centers for Radiological and Digital Health uh, or Diagnostic uh, Health, have, have come forward and created categories. Um, it's called software as a medical device, and these are devices that need to undergo a, you know, registered clinical trial with appropriate powering and appropriate endpoints and really show that they're not only effective, but also safe, right? I think this is a really interesting space. So, you know, I don't know if, if you all follow this, but we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the change that digital does on our brains, right? And, and it, the fact is, if you can create a device like what Achille did with Endeavor RX that treats ADHD with a game, imagine what the negative side of that coin might be. And if you develop the game wrong, right, you could actually exacerbate ADHD, right? And so they went through the clinical study to show it's not only safe, but it's effective. And I think on the flip side of that, I think I would be wary around digital therapeutics that have not gone through the FDA because we don't actually know, right, if they're safe and effective and they could actually do something that's negative. Um, so that's one point. I think the other interesting thing around this whole digital medicine space is around the diagnostics. So again, I think, you know, digital diagnostics are, are fascinating and many of them have AI embedded within them, right? So the therapeutics, not so much, there are a few. There's actually a ton of hype around artificial intelligence. And so, um, I think really looking and saying, what is this AI? How did they develop it? Do they really have AI? Is it really just hype is, is important. But I was at a Stanford um, uh, uh, meeting where they said AI group is out of Stanford and the keynote speaker was actually talking about AI hype cycles. And the reality is, is that everyone in that group was a clinician based AI, you know, developers or, or people that work in the AI space recognize that we're very close to having AI be very ubiquitous within our healthcare systems. And, and it's starting. I mean, you know, definitely Cugno is on, on the forefront of that, but many other individuals have come in, have gotten FDA approval with an AI device. One of the things that, again, that you have to be cautious about with AI though is like anything, right? If I have a stethoscope and I put it on a heart, it amplifies the sound. If I put AI onto healthcare, it's gonna amplify what's there. And if what's, what's there is bias and racism and sexism or whatever else is going on, right, it has the potential to amplify it. And so there's two really important things, I think, as we're looking at AI embedded within the digital health space that we have to be aware of is, did they recruit and train on a diverse sample of patients? And does that diverse sample of patients represent who I'm going to apply this tool on? And then the other really important feature that, that I think we really need to push on, and it's and I think it's going to become a, a commonplace, is don't make determinations or calls, is what we call them, right? And when you're, when you're using an AI algorithm, if the AI algorithm can't do that with a high degree of accuracy. And so there's this concept of abstention that exists within the AI healthcare space. 
that um, very few companies actually deploy. Cognol is one of them, but it was something that was really important to me as a clinician that if we don't have this opportunity to say, I don't know, because even as a clinician, you might come see me and I don't know what you have. And I should, and, and if I'm a really good doctor, I'll tell you, I don't know. And that's what I do. So that's not a plug for me, but we should hold the AI to the same approach. Don't, the AI should say it doesn't know when it doesn't know. And that's really important. So even though it is clinically validated, artificial intelligence, there's still a chance that we, we end up in this space that we, we don't know. It's not quite accurate or not quite, um, I guess, final. Exactly. But all tests have that, Ramin, right? Like there's always going to be a false positive and a false negative. But again, when you're dealing with highly complex disorders or conditions, having this like band of indeterminates and where, where, you know, you can apply and say, okay, I need more information. I need another test. I need, you know, more something else to make a determination I think is really important because whether we like it or not, we all have biases, right? Our brains all have a bias. And one of the biases that you can run into is like a confirmation bias, or you can, you know, like an anchoring bias. So these are biases by which, you know, I get an information and I've made up my mind and then I just reaffirm it, right? We, I think we saw that in the pandemic too, not to get political, but that, I mean, that's what happened, right? Or if you look at social media, right? If I constantly just have the same thing fed to me and I don't have a dissenting voice, right? It, it creates a, a certain way to think. And so it's important to actually hear other sides and other opinions on things. Um, but in the AI space, you know, and like, again, for most tests, having this band where you can say there's a, there's a little bit of uncertainty here, it's important because then it prevents you also from anchoring on a diagnosis um, where I say, oh, this is autism, but in fact, it's not, or it's not autism because it's speech. So the, the, we actually had an advisor, Dr. Nichols, talk about overshadowing uh, diagnoses. So one of the things that often happens in the space, kids will have a speech delay and then there's a lot of kids who have just isolated speech delay, but there's many kids who, with autism who will present as their presenting feature as a speech delay. But because the speech delay is so obvious, they're like, oh, speech delay, and they miss the autism. And then it's hard to recoup from that because you, you miss the opportunity of intervention. Well, what I really like about the Cognor value story is that it's not just about the early diagnosis and the intervention, which obviously the, the child will benefit from, but also there's this whole other aspect of streamlining the pathway to care, right? And providing the providers, equip them with the right tools so they have a more streamlined and efficient pathway so they can diagnose and take care of the patient. But also the other aspect of it, again, is also supporting the parents because I'm sure the parents are really very excited about having a tool like this uh, that will give them a peace of mind, whether the child is diagnosed or not diagnosed, or maybe, but at least they have a pathway to move things forward. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Ramin. So this is actually really important. So there's there's two things that hold true in this space. Parental concern is very predictive of there's something there. So we should always listen to our parents. We should listen to our patients, right? When patients come in and they say something's wrong, like, who am I to gaslight them and say, no, you don't actually have this problem. Like, that's ridiculous, right? And we're starting to see actually and understand this concept of medical gaslight, uh, gaslighting. Um, but on the flip side of that, the parental voice is also important. And part of what the way that we built the tool is, again, those videos of the child in their home setting is important. So I can see what the child actually does. 
but the parent actually completes or the caregiver completes one of the inputs to our device. And so their voice is captured raw, not interpreted by me. And actually what you can see and sometimes in healthcare, a patient will come in and they'll say one thing and the clinician, you know, and it's not because a clinician is trying to do something wrong. It's just, again, we have biases. The clinician will adjust or change what the parent said to fit whatever they're thinking. And so they're either discounting or amplifying things that aren't really meant to be amplified or discounted. And so what we do is we, we look at that in the context um, of everything that's coming in and we're not manipulating or changing the inputs as the parents give it to us or as the parents upload it. So the parent and patient empowerment is beautiful in this story. And then to your point, one of the things that we, we're never gonna be able to make our primary care physicians you know, have more time. Like, I just don't see that happening, right? You go to your primary care physician and right now until we fix our insurance issues, which is a whole nother thing. I don't, I don't have the energy for that right now, but um, maybe in a future life. Uh, right, you have five minutes, 15 minutes with a family as a primary care physician. I, I really feel bad for them. And I, there was a study that came out and looked at if a clinician met all of the uh, screening requirements, best practices, and followed all the guidelines in a typical day for a typical number of patients, they would need 27 hours to do all of that. In a It's a 24-hour day, let alone you only work for like 8 to 12 hours a day when you do clinics. So there's no way. Like we can't do all the things that we need to do to take care of our patients in the primary care setting. And so again, this is like when we create these digital tools like Canvas DX, it's going to work in a primary care setting or in a clinician's workflow. So that's give the give a physician who normally didn't diagnose autism the confidence and the information in a very hyper-efficient way to be more successful. Now recognizing, look, there's going to be some pediatricians and some primary doctors that are like, yeah, I don't know, neurodevelopment, that's scary. I don't want to do it. And that's fine. The other kind of value proposition to your point is, can you make the physicians more efficient who are specialists? So instead of me taking two or three or four hours to do an evaluation on a child with autism, which is, by the way, that's kind of the standard, can I cut that down and get the information I need in 15 minutes or 10 minutes? And then rather than spending 85% of my resources on diagnosing kids with autism and only 15% on treating them, I can flip that script. And that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing right now in our specialty autism centers, these centers of excellence, they have a resource pot where 85% of it is being spent on diagnosing kids and only 15% on treating. What are we doing? That's totally backwards. Let's focus on get the diagnosis fast and efficiently, and then spend your resources on actually treating the kids. So I want to amplify a couple of those points that you just said, Sharif, specifically around the increasing the amount of bandwidth and capacity of our healthcare workforce and the fact that Canvas is, is one tool in kind of the arsenal of digital medicine and digital therapies, um, digital diagnostics. The digital medicine space in, in general, I think there's a lot of bad stigma that it's going to replace clinical psychologists. It's going to replace physicians in the diagnosis setting. Um, it's going to be replacing traditional drugs or traditional therapies that are on market that gives a lot of um, traditional stakeholders a lot of anxiety versus recognizing that Fundamentally, actually, this is a really critical complement and supplement that is going to further enable more patients to get better care faster in other settings that are really going to expand our ability to help people. 
can you speak a little bit to that and, and really how this is such an important complement that's actually starting to round out our system as a whole? Absolutely. And I got to give credit to uh, Dr. Anthony Chang, who's one of my uh, colleagues, mentors, friends. I think he said it best. And he was talking about people who are worried that AI is going to replace them as physicians. And the reality is, is that AI is not going to replace physicians, but physicians who use AI will replace the physicians who don't use AI. And, and to your point exactly, Kim, is that, you know, this is a tool. It, we, we need to learn how to use it. We need to learn how to use it properly. We don't want to implement it like we did the EMR. The EMR, as it has lots of benefits. Don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a total EMR champion. I remember, I know I look young, but I remember the days where I didn't have a chart. I had to run over to a clinic building, find a patient's chart who had been hospitalized to know what the heck was going on with them. And we'd like bring the paper chart back to the hospital and make copies so that you knew what the patient had because there was no record of their, I mean, it was bad pre-EMR, like it's not good. But we also implemented EMR sort of in a vacuum, right? We didn't get the right stakeholders to the table. And then what we found is EMR sort of became this like crux. And right, as a clinician, one of the big dissatisfiers is like, oh, I don't want to use the EMR because it's slow or it's clunky or, you know, I'm like a data entry specialist. Now, again, there's this promise of this AI, which now you can say, oh, you know, natural language processing is going to make it so that I'm not dictating into the chart. And by the way, it allows you to potentially capture information that's currently not being captured. I think a great example of this is I've been rounding in the hospital on a, a, a baby and this baby had weakness and we couldn't figure out why the baby had weakness. It was one of these things where, you know, we were doing the workup and we're waiting for the test results. Um, but what's interesting is, is like the parent wasn't around it. So every time we would go around the bed, we'd miss the parent. It was like ships passing in the night. And so finally, like on day three of rounding, I was like, I really need to like meet this parent. I need to talk to them, like give them an update. And sure enough, when I talk to this parent and I shake their hand, they have what we call myotonia. So they hold on, they couldn't let go. And they had a hypernasal speech pattern. And like, that was easy for me because that easy relative, right? It's a pattern recognition. I'm like, this is probably myotonic dystrophy. Mom probably has it. It's a trinucleotide expansion. And this is what the kid has. And it redirected care. Now, the reality is none of that would ever be captured in an electronic medical record. But if we had better tools, we would know that mom has maybe hypernasal speech, right? If we had digital biomarkers, we would be able to tell like grip strength, things like that, right? Because you have all these tools to collect this data now. And maybe that's a little bit of a fringe example and it's not gonna happen for another two decades, but in the digital medicine space, we are capturing information. I think the challenge that we have is that it will create a potential data tsunami Right. We're already at that. But so even without digital medicine, I can tell you. So I teach a health information class in the School of Engineering at Chapman University. It's a seminar. And one of the things that I show my computer science and computer engineering students is I load up one of my old school patients who's now 14. I've been caring for him since he was a baby. And I just, you know, obviously anonymize. I just load his labs and I can break the EMR because there's so many labs in his data field that you can't even see them all on one page, let alone. And now that 14 year old, because we're so good at what we do is hopefully going to become an 84 year old. And now imagine what are the labs? And if you're trying to go back and find that they have a genetic mutation that affects their clotting pathways, which is what caused this child's stroke and cerebral palsy, 
right? You may miss that completely because there's so much information. And so I think there's a lot of promise, but I also have a little bit of caution, right? I'm not this overly optimistic, unrealistic person. We do need to be thoughtful about how we implement digital medicine. I think we need to be thoughtful about how we implement, um, you know, artificial intelligence in medicine. I'm not worried about us replacing anything. I think I know what we're going to do is if we do it right and we do it thoughtfully, we'll address those disparities that we keep talking about. We will make life better for everybody, the clinicians and the patients. We will drive discovery because we're going to know and we're going to discover things that we couldn't see before because we were just wasting the data. We were sending it out into the ether. It was digital exhaust. And now we can capture it. And so I think we have this really beautiful opportunity, um, you know, maybe from the mud and the anger and the frustration, like let's grow some flowers together. I mean, the real time data and observing the patient that you're collecting, it's so powerful, right? That will allow the physicians to, be, to make a much more intelligent decision based on what, they, what the data that they have on a real, real time or real life situation of the patient. I think that's, that's the whole core value and benefit of a tool like a digital medicine and observing patients, what's, what's happening with them. We have to do this. If there are people that are afraid about doing it, they are, they're a little bit too short-sighted because the reality is, is that we are facing a healthcare crisis. We have a physician healthcare crisis. We have a nursing healthcare crisis on the horizon. We will not have enough people to care for our population. We have an aging population. We have kids that are growing up. We have much more births than we had before. The birth rate's high, right? So we have to figure out how to use technology, specifically digital tech, to improve the way that we're efficient, thoughtful, intelligent, to make good healthcare decisions and empower back the patient. So Sharif, what do you see the future of, of AI and digital medicine? Maybe fast forward five years, 10 years. Do you think there, there will be a course maybe in medical schools uh, teaching about you know, digital medicine? And it's actually already starting, Ramin. So we worked with some of the new schools that are coming up. This, you know, you can tell I do lots of stuff in this space. So one of one of the things that I worked on was actually helping create a curriculum. Uh, it's uh, uh, at one of the new uh, schools around uh, informatics and AI in healthcare, because we do need clinicians who are trained on this, right? I was fortunate enough to quote unquote grandparent in to my board certification for clinical informatics. Um, but we've created informatics trainings for our residents and fellows. So, um, you know, any, any trainee resident can do a fellowship now in clinical informatics. We have a program at University of California, Irvine um, that I helped set up, uh, but we're now moving it down into the, uh, you know, graduate medical education uh, in medical school. Um, and even more so, like at the hospital um, or the healthcare system that I'm at, Children's Health of Orange County, um, we actually run an internship for eight weeks where we bring in high school and college students to learn about innovation in medicine and, you know, digital health and, you know, informatics and AI and medicine and nanoparticles and all kinds of emerging technologies that are coming out because that is the next generation. And, and getting, I think, also, too, in that spirit giving opportunities to, to minoritized individuals or disadvantaged youth is really important. So we actually looked at, you know, a, about a third of our uh, students that come in through that program are, are disadvantaged in some way, shape or form. And we really are trying to give them opportunities to get in the healthcare space um, or healthcare technology. 
Sharif, this is incredible. I think there's so much potential around the digital medicine space, what AI is already doing in healthcare that people, frankly, just don't know enough about um, and the potential of where it's going to go. We very, very much appreciate all of your insights and excited to see what you, Cognoa, and Canvas have in store coming into 23. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I also am looking forward to all of the good things that we're going to be able to do together. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.